Thank you so much for joining me for these days of prayer, these 40 days of focus on um, really an alignment with our Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination, which is doing a, a devotional of 40 days of prayer. This, this week is an outwardly focused prayer time and prayer emphasis, particularly uh, on on the people that, in a way, are marginalized, um, one of the descriptors that's often used. And so today, we're going to talk about the idea of praying for those who are coming into our our community or into our lives, who are who are not from this country. Maybe they're immigrants. Maybe they're refugees. And so that's the focus of the Christian Missionary Alliance's devotional um, for prayer. But I wanted to I wanted to start off by explaining or looking at the scripture in Ephesians two verse nineteen. It says, Consequently you are no longer foreigners and aliens. Uh, another word for that would be strangers or sojourners but you're fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, no longer foreigners and aliens. In a sense, what Paul is saying is that every single person apart from Christ lives in this world as a foreigner, lives in this world as a a stranger, that that's the natural state of human beings, whether they are citizens of one country or another, whether they're from one ethnicity or another. Paul says, separated from God, in bondage to sin, living in this world, is to live as a stranger, as an alien. He said, but when Jesus comes into our life, we're no longer strangers, we're no longer foreigners, we're no longer aliens, but we're fellow citizens with all of God's people. Again, God's people transcends race, culture, ethnicity, age, socioeconomic categories, citizenship, nationality. None of those things have any great relevance to being citizens of heaven. Philippians 3 is the one where we are declared not only citizens with one another, like in Ephesians 2, But Philippians 3.20 says, we are citizenship is in heaven. This is the most valuable citizenship of all. It's interesting because the word used for citizenship by Paul in Philippians, when he says our citizenship in heaven, is is the Greek word from which we get the word politics, polituma. And so what Paul is saying is, your politics, my politics are in heaven. Our, our party, our political party, is heaven. Your way of living with people, my way of living with people, the way we conduct ourselves in this world should be from the perspective and viewpoint of heaven instead of some earthly bound viewpoint. Our politics are not earthbound. Politics, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. So what difference would that make if that's true of us? What difference would it make if we each and every one of us live as citizens 
of heaven and we live that citizenship out. We grasp it. We do it together. Well, in a way, there are incredible benefits to us for this. There's a a stability and a source of joy. In other words, to live as a citizen of heaven is to draw your peace, your resources, your joy from heaven instead of your circumstances and whatever your past or present might be, that actually you're living as one who knows you have the appeal and you have the ability to appropriate all the resources of heaven for whatever circumstance that you're in, which then should produce in your life because of a a confidence that you have in your source, a confidence that you have in your status, should produce in your life a greater degree of creativity and, and excellence than you've ever seen before because you're living out of and living for heaven itself, the kingdom of heaven. Now, one way to illustrate this is that in living in another country, I've gotten to live in other countries. I've gotten to minister in many countries and many continents outside of the United States. And it's interesting to be a U.S. citizen in another country. To live there, I even though I was a U.S. citizen, I had to adapt. I, I had the great privilege and, and the joy of learning Spanish in the country of Costa Rica. I was not a citizen of Costa Rica. I had to adapt. I had to speak the language. I had to learn the customs. And I had to abide by the laws of every country that I lived in. But on another level, is that even though I was living in that country and even though I was adapting, I never stopped being a U.S. citizen. And the duties and the rights that I enjoyed were the duties and the rights of being a U.S. citizen in another country. Sometimes I was in countries that were very dangerous. And I was there not for my sake or any kind of pleasure. I was invited in to advance the gospel. I was invited in to train and to teach those who were ministering to the most needy people sometimes in their country. And it was not always safe and it wasn't always easy to be in such a country. And uh, I knew at times that harm could come to me. But I also knew that that I, I wasn't a citizen of that country. It didn't affect me, nor did they have the rights over me that they would have over a citizen. In a way, that's really what it's like to be a Christian in this world. It's not that we don't learn to speak the language. It's not that we don't adapt and understand culture and understand law and understand these different things. But it's always with the eye that this world does not have the rights over you, nor do you have the bondage to this world because you're not a citizen of this world. Listen what Colossians 1.13 says. The moment you receive Christ as your Savior, your citizenship is transferred into the kingdom of his dear Son. From that moment of transference, you receive a whole new set of duties. It's the, it's the duties of citizenship of the highest kingdom, the kingdom of God's dear son. 
You have a whole new set of rights. You have access. You have resources. You can appropriate. When you're in trouble, you have refuge. Anywhere you are, this is, this is what's fascinating to me. You're an ambassador for Christ, so anywhere you are is the embassy. You don't have to go to the embassy. The embassy travels with you. So that your appeal and your call to heaven is immediately recognized. You see, your politics have changed. The way you relate to the world has changed. You have to begin to understand that change in order to be effective, in a sense, as a Christian. One famous Christian writer, an English, English writer who became a Christian later in life, said, as Christians, we know that here we have no continuing city, that crowns roll in the dust, and that every earthly kingdom must sometime flounder. As Christians, too, we acknowledge a king. Men did not crown, and they cannot destroy. Just as we are citizens of a city, men did not build and cannot destroy. What I see quite often is, is people who are Christians mired in the kingdom of this world. Mired by the circumstances, anxious, angry, upset, insecure, fearful. That's not living as if we are citizens of a king that men did not crown and that men cannot destroy. That's not living in a city that men did not build and men cannot destroy. Every crown lifted up on this world can be taken down. Every city built by humans can be destroyed. But you're not, you're not citizens of that crown. You're not citizens of that city. You're citizens of a king that no one could take away his crown. And you're citizens of a city not built by human hands and no one can destroy. And even though you live in this world, this is not your kingdom and this is not your city. Does not mean we can't have love for our nation? It doesn't mean we can't have great affection for our communities, but ultimately our loyalty, our allegiance is to the kingdom of heaven, to the kingdom of God's dear son. And if we live in the reality of this truth and we live and work out the implications in a much more consistent and diligent way than many Christians do, then you see, we would begin to be an incredibly compelling community. Tim Keller says it, we'd be the most compelling, that's the word I like to use, community of all the many communities of humanity. Because you see, we're not looking to this world to be our source. It doesn't mean we don't appreciate the places of joy in this world or the places of provision in this world, but they're not the source of our life, our joy, or our peace. We're citizens that have resources beyond what this world can provide. And why is this so important? Well, because it's challenging to be a citizen of heaven in this world. Uh, today's devotional gives some statistics that are staggering. Our world is home to 7.8 billion people. 
Most reside in the land of their birth, but about 272 million are migrants. In other words, they have no permanent dwelling. Some people leave their communities by choice, looking for greater opportunities, but many are forced to flee their homelands, their cultures, their families, with little or no say about their future destination. My son-in-law and my daughter are working with refugees in Atlanta, Georgia. Such is the case. They leave behind, not because they want to, but because they have to, everything they knew to come to a place where, in many ways, they're not welcome. There's no easy path for them. And so it's an amazing kind of ministry when you realize there's this whole world of people who are forced out of, of their... You know, their natural circumstances, their home life. And so one of the things that is true of them, and this is what my daughter especially has been able to show me, is that every person who is living the immigrant life experiences a, a, you know, a, a profound degree of vulnerability, being a stranger, being alien. In an alien land. And vulnerability can either be met with hostility or it can be relieved by compassion and hospitality. By those who have stability can bless those who have vulnerability. Now, why is that so important? If we go back to our viewpoint is from heaven, not from earth. Our viewpoint is not necessarily dictated by any administration's immigration policies, but by Scripture itself. God, throughout Scripture, sees and feels for those who seemingly are invisible, forgotten, vulnerable. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the alien, giving food and clothing, Deuteronomy ten eighteen. This is Moses, that was Moses' big sermon, his big final sermon, that they should care in their lives of building up their own security. They should care about the fatherless, the widow, the stranger, the foreigner, the immigrant. Um, even in Leviticus, the law of God is given. It says, when an alien lives with you in your land, do not mistreat him. The alien living with you must be treated as one of your native born. Love him as yourself, for you are aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. See, this issue of immigration is actually, and of being an alien in a strange land, is actually a very common theme, particularly in the Old Testament. There's a Hebrew word, uh, gare, which most English translations render foreigner, sojourner, or alien, but Tim Keller argues that this Hebrew word actually meant immigrant. And it actually appears 92 times in one form or another, 92 times in the Old Testament. So the, the positive aspect of this is that God sets a standard for his people that those who come to dwell as strangers should be treated as if they were natives, as if they were part of the tribe. And as he gives the law, he repeatedly states protections, including fair treatment, 
they were entitled to a Sabbath rest. You understand? I don't have time to go into this, but the Sabbath is not for slaves. Sabbath is for free people. It's for people who are free to take a day and worship. And so to prompt payment for labor, not to misuse or abuse uh, these who were strangers in the land just because they were strangers. They should be paid properly and promptly is what Deuteronomy 24. And then... There are many uh, other places where the equality of treatment between those who were born in the land and those who were not uh, was established so they would have equal access to the justice of God in the law. So the other thing that is often uh, mentioned at the same time is the idea that if anyone who is an orphan anyone who has lost parents or anyone who has lost, particularly in this case, has lost a husband. In that society, it was, it was easy to neglect and to take advantage of, of women who were not, uh, either husbands had died or they were not married because they had no man to speak for them. And so God, God, in his law, made provisions for justice to be done to those uh, upon whom society might just forget. And so here's what God is saying about whether it's the stranger or the orphan or the single parent. He's saying, I love you. And because I love you, he said, my people will need to treat you with justice and fairness and compassion. And then God ties it to something very powerful. He said, you were strangers in Egypt. You of all people should know what it is like to be mistreated. It's so interesting, isn't it, that often those who have been abused turn into abusers. It does not necessarily create empathy. It doesn't necessarily create compassion when the tables are turned and power is reversed. And yet God is saying to his people, you remember what it was like to be abused. You remember what it was like to be treated unfairly. And I'm asking you, because I've saved you with my great love, I'm asking you now to treat those that you think don't deserve your compassion. I'm asking you to treat them with compassion because you were treated with compassion. So we begin to, you know, we see this in the New Testament where Jesus begins to explain the whole idea of the neighbor. And he uses, you remember the the story of the Samaritan. And the Samaritan is the only one who takes compassion on a devout Jew who has been robbed and beaten and left for dead. The religious leaders who pass by do not want to get unclean. They don't want to get their hands dirty. They don't want to be ceremonially unclean. And so they pass by thinking in their pious actions they are, they are appeasing God when in fact they are rebelling against God and against the very nature of God. And so Jesus shames the religious leaders of his day because they have to say that the Samaritan is the one who treats 
um, the, the fallen Jewish person, the fallen devout person with love, and who is the true neighbor. And so Jesus has tried to destroy the idea of these barriers, that I can treat certain people well and not treat others well. And that there are these exclusive things where I can show love to some, but I can't show love to others. Jesus is the one, in a way, he says, love your brothers and your sisters, love your neighbors, and love your enemies. He pretty much is saying, treat everyone that has breath with the same love that you would treat those that are closest to you. And so this idea is somehow that we can hate that we can deal with people in a way different than Jesus would have us deal with, even the way the Samaritan dealt with the wounded and almost dead Jewish person, that we can act differently from that is the antithesis, is the opposite of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about what Jesus said to us. Make disciples of all nations. And this is an interesting thing is that Jesus said to us as his disciples, go. And as you are going, make disciples. And it's interesting that we live in a day where it's all the people groups that are going. And they're actually coming to us. And we're failing in many ways because of whatever political reasons or whatever philosophical reasons we are struggling to receive those we were to go to, maybe because they're coming to us instead of we're going to them. But this movement of people towards us in America is not an accident. Acts 17, 26 and 27 says, God himself has made it to where all people, he's determined this time set for them in the exact places where they should live so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. This is Acts 17. Is you know, 2,000 years ago almost, the Luke is recording how the the plan of God is to move people into place so that they can find him. So there may be all kind of economic, sociological reasons why people are moving, but the Bible says God has sovereignly moved this time and is superintending this time. So that those of us who are ambassadors for Christ, those of us whose mission is to reconcile the world to God, even Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I send you, we are here to bring them the good news so they can come into a saving relationship with Christ. And we're not even having to go to their countries, they're coming to us. And that we can follow him and make him make others those disciples that Jesus asked us to do. What, a, what an amazing truth. What an amazing time to live in. But we cannot forget this basic reality. We were foreigners. We were strangers. But now we're citizens. Not just of the United States of America or whatever nationality we're a part of. We are citizens of heaven and we are citizens one of another. And Jesus wants all nations, not just some, make disciples of all nations. And he said, I am with you always, even to the end of this age. So we can't just look at people who are moving into our 
communities as intrusions. They're coming. And, and our hope, our belief has to be that, that, that whether they know it or not, they're seeking God. And there's an openness in our love and our compassion and our intentions towards those in our community can bring another brother or sister into the family of God, into the kingdom of God's dear son. Now, will that, will that change the church? Yes. Will it change our nation? Yes. Everything is changing. Change that's happening is pretty much irreversible. But we, we are not glued into, and our resources and our strength isn't coming as a source from our circumstances. It's coming from our citizenship in heaven. And we, instead of trying to, to make things happen that we have no control over and we have no right or ability to control, we can step into this moment, not only in prayer, but in welcome, in empathy, in intention. So we have to have courage during this time. We have to have courage to believe that anyone that's coming into our nation that Jesus has died in Jesus' death in such a way is, is, is so efficacious that it is sufficient for all, for all nations, all tribes, all people, all languages. So instead of seeing through a biblical lens, we might see new people, different people as a threat. You might even call it an invasion. Rather, Jesus would call it a missional opportunity. So as we look, as we welcome, as we express hospitality, as we deal with change, we must do so as those who are firmly rooted in heaven, not just mired by the circumstances and resources here on earth. Some, some people who say that they are Christians have damaged our mission one writer says it this way, it's horrifying to hear those identified with the gospel speak, whatever their position on the issues, with mean-spirited disdain for the immigrants themselves. Do we not remember that Jesus came for the lost sheep, the one lost sheep, and when that one lost sheep, whatever ethnicity, whatever tribe, whatever nation they come from, that one lost sheep is found, all of heaven stops and rejoices and welcomes this new family member. The angels themselves welcome this new birth, this new spirit-born person into the very family of God. So what we're praying for is not only to pray for the refugees, the immigrants, the orphans, the those who have who are on their own, either single or divorced or widowed, whatever it might be that has brought about such a change in their lives, the scriptures say that God's love is upon them and for them, and that we who have the love of God upon us must also have that kind of eyesight that sees like heaven sees these things. So is our compassion there? Compassion involves intention, but it also involves action to open our hearts, 
to do what we can, even in this pandemic, to do what we can, to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ in practical ways so that people will know that the love of Christ is real for them. So the prayer points for today, very convicting uh, theme today from our Christian Missionary Alliance leaders. God, open my eyes to immigrants in my community who need my compassion. That's prayer point one. Lord, provide wisdom, discernment, and provision, not only to those who work with immigrants, but also to those of us in our own dealings, in our own attitudes and actions. And then the third prayer point, Jesus, reveal your compassion to those who are strangers, those who are immigrants through your church, through your people, so that they will come to know your unconditional love and saving grace. Every human being on earth, according to the Apostle Paul, is an immigrant, a foreigner, a stranger. You, the object of the Father's love, the object of Jesus' sacrifice, the object of the Holy Spirit's attention and affection, were taken out of being a stranger, out of being a foreigner, and brought into the kingdom of God's wonderful Son, and he calls you citizen of an eternal city, citizen of heaven. As you live this life and practically work that out, it will make all the difference in how you see others, how you treat others. The other thing is that this citizenship is only for those who are sinners who realize their need for a savior. No one else will be citizens of this of this city. It's only sinners saved by grace who become citizens of heaven. And so we're all equally needy, equally lost, equally strangers. And it's only the love of Christ or the love of God in Christ that lifts us up, adopts us into the family of God by his spirit. And then we get to cry not only as citizens, but as sons and daughters, Abba, Father. We receive this today. I feel like this is important that we have this viewpoint, that we not just pray, oh God, bless the immigrants, but that we pray that God's, that the mission of Jesus to reach all nations would begin to be on the hearts and the minds of every believer. We can make a difference. In Jesus' name, amen.